to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. I want to, um, those of you who have Bibles here or if you want to um, go there in your, on your smartphone, just go with me to Luke chapter 15. I want to read a couple of verses there from uh, Luke chapter 15. Very well-known chapter. Uh, which, which parable is that chapter especially well-known for? Yes, the prodigal son, that's right. The parable of the prodigal son is in Luke chapter 15. Um, we're actually not going to read the parable of the prodigal son. I, I, I will actually probably preach on that a, um, a bit later in the, in the you know in a week two or so weeks. Um, but we're going to we're going to look at the well in my Bible it's divided into two parables. Before that, in Luke chapter fifteen verse one to ten, um, I'm just going to read that to you. I want you to listen carefully because. This, the situation, the historic situation, and then the parables with which Jesus addresses this historic situation presents an important challenge to us. Now, there's an important trap that we can fall into that the Pharisees fell into, um, and Jesus gives the remedy of that. And uh, I'm just going to read that and, and, um, and then talk about it for a while. It says in Luke 15 verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now just uh, just to interrupt myself there, this this historic context is really important. Because the whole thing of hearing Jesus, of listening to Jesus, hearing him and obeying him, is a, a massive theme throughout Luke and Acts. It's one of the most important themes, arguably the, the most important theme in Luke and Acts. Um, and, and there's a contrast here between two groups. The tax collectors and the sinners who hear Jesus, and then the next verse, verse 2 says, but. In other words, there's a contrast with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who don't hear Jesus and who mutter against Him and against those who do hear Him. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then, Jesus responds, it says, when Jesus, then Jesus told them this parable. And, and notice, it says parable in the singular, right? Not parables. It says this parable, and then Jesus tells which seems to be, what seems to be three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Strictly speaking, it's the parable of the lost sons. Um, but he, he just says, the, Luke just says he tells him this parable, singular. So it seems... That Jesus and Luke sees these parables, which we see as three parables, as one. That's interesting. Okay, and, and when we get to the parable of the lost son, we'll talk about that a little bit more. I mean, it's, it's quite clear to see that the, the first two are actually one. Because the second one in verse 8, it starts with, uh, it, it says, uh, you know, talks about the shepherd. And then he says, or suppose, you know, a woman loses a coin. So let, let's just read those parables. So it says, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Interesting uh, interesting parable. And... um, we see here that the contrast is between these two groups. The tax collectors and the sinners who gather around Jesus to hear him, and the Pharisees and the, and the, the, the teachers of the law who don't hear Jesus and who actually complain against those who do and against Jesus. Okay? And, and it's all about hearing Jesus and it's all about having Jesus' heart and how Jesus' heart is different from that of the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Okay? And... It's interesting to me how the Pharisees in those days and how Pharisees today still do the guilt by association thing. Have you ever noticed that? I, I remember. Um, I remember there's this, this well-known pastor, Pastor John Piper. I know. I think some of you will know him, um, and and he moves in in sort of very conservative evangelical baptist circles and he has this this annual conference i don't even know what it what it's called and he invited pastor rick warren who's also a baptist also evangelical but who's not considered as conservative and sort of like serious about the bible he invited him to this conference to come speak and there was a massive fallout from this conservative baptist grouping of which John Piper was a part, and they nailed him in the internet and so on because he would dare to associate with Rick Warren. And you know the first thing that I thought? Pharisees. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the problem of the Pharisees. That's the problem of the Pharisees. They're not like us. Not enough like us, at least. You know? And, 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 and here's the challenge I, I just want to hold off before us, because I think most of us are Christians, and one of the biggest dangers we face as Christians is to become like the Pharisees. It's, it's more easy than we think to become like the Pharisees. And that leaven of the Pharisees, that theology of the Pharisees, if, if it sort of gets into your heart, it's deadly. It's deadly to a community. It's deadly to a church. So I just want to uh, look at these parables and how Jesus addresses it. Now, um, notice that these parables are very much the same. They're pretty much telling the same story, but there are some subtle differences that Jesus uses to emphasize certain things. So I'm just going to go through the parables, both of them at once, and sort of just discuss the major points of, of 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 the parable and then what they mean to us. Firstly, you have something being lost. So you have a shepherd... And he loses a sheep. You have a woman and she loses a coin. Okay, you have, you have a, a character who loses something. 
in the in the in the first part of, of, of each of the parables. And obviously we understand that both of those characters stand for God. And it's referring to the so called sinners whom he has lost and who he wants to find back again. And the second thing we see is they they both do something or, or, or they both search and they both find the thing that they have lost. They both search and they both find uh, the thing that they have lost. In the first parable about the shepherd, the, the emphasis falls more on what the shepherd leaves behind. He leaves behind the 99 and he goes to look for the one that he has lost. Okay? Now that's, that's important. In the, in the second parable, the emphasis is more on the searching itself. I mean, she, she lights a lamp, she sweeps out the whole house, she diligently searches to find. So the, in the second one, the, the emphasis is more on the search itself and the diligence of the search. But in the first one, the emphasis is more on what the shepherd is leaving behind. And in the last, the last phrases of, of that parable, you see that emphasis again. Likewise, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who do not need to repent. So you can see that emphasis clearly. So what does that emphasis mean? Why does Jesus emphasize those? Because that's a bit troubling to us, right? Are the 99 not important to Jesus or to the shepherd? Because, I mean, we associate the shepherd with, with Jesus. Are the 99 not important to Jesus? No. The, 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 notice that the, the parable never says that he left them alone in the open country. It just says he left them in the open country. Okay, So he might have had another shepherd or a friend who he said, okay, you take care of them. Okay, the, the parable doesn't tell us. That's not important. Okay, The point is not that the 99 is not important. The 99 is important. But the 99 are being used as a contrast with the one that is lost. Okay, In other words, the shep- for the shepherd, the one that is lost, the one that is lost is even more important than the 99. So he's comparing something that is very important to something that is even more important. Um, let me put it to you this way, this camp. Okay? Who of you understand that Sunday services are important to us as a church? Okay? You understand that, right? We cancelled our normal Sunday service in Roosevelt High School in order to have the service here at the camp. That doesn't mean that the normal service at Roosevelt were, is, is not important to us. I mean, we're going to have it pretty much every Sunday, the whole year. That's how important it is to us. But this camp was even more important to us. It was so important to us that we were willing to cancel our normal services in order to have this. And that should tell you how important this is to us. That doesn't say, that doesn't tell you how unimportant Sunday services are to us. Because it's not unimportant. It is important to us. But it tells you that this is really important. If we're willing to cancel something important, then what we're having now must be massively important to us. Can you, can you see that? Um, another way to look at it, yeah, George was telling me yesterday about uh, a movie, The Guardian. Um, apparently Kevin Costner and Ashton Kutcher play, play, play the main roles of, uh, you know, of, a, of an older um, Lifesaver, um, and a younger lifesaver uh, that, that trains him, and and, and you know everyone's uh, he's this uh, 
the older one, Kevin, played by Kevin Costner, apparently he's this legendary lifesaver who saved many, 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 many lives, you know, and he's this legend, you know, in the business. And everyone's always asking him what his number is. You know, the, and, and what, they, what lifesavers mean by that is what is the number of people you've saved? And when he's asked, what's your number? He says 14. And the guy says, no, I can't believe it. You know, only 14. You've only saved 14 people. He says, no, no, no. 14 is the number of people I didn't manage to save. I don't keep count of the rest. Can you see that it's the same attitude that Jesus is portraying in this parable? How many are you willing to allow to get away? How many are you willing to allow to remain lost? That's the challenge that this parable puts to us. And Jesus says he's not willing to let one lost sheep get away as the shepherd he will go out and fetch them even if it's just one can you see that can you see how important um the lost is to jesus and 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 this is all said in this in the context the historical context of the pharisees and the scribes muttering and complaining against jesus for doing exactly that because here's the thing how can you Go out and search for and find and save the lost if you're not willing to spend time with the lost. You can't, right? You can't. And, and you know, sometimes one of the things I think that, that, that should be coming through as a, as a major theme over this weekend, for those of you who were here the whole weekend, is that if we're doing church in such a way that we have so many programs and stuff that it takes us away from contact with the lost, then we're doing church wrong. Amen? Then we're doing church wrong. So the second parable, the emphasis, uh, or the second part of the parable, the emphasis is on the diligent search. Just notice this woman. I mean, she, she loses the silver coin. She has ten. She loses one. What does she do? She, it was probably during the evening that she found, uh, realized the coin was lost because she lights a lamp, you know, so that she can see what's going on in there. She sweeps out the whole house. And, and the, 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 the picture here, the emphasis here is on how diligently she, she searches. And, and, and the, the challenge to us here is how diligently do we search for people that are lost? How much trouble do we go to to try and find people that are lost? To recover them. Or do we just do a little bit and then sort of give up? Sort of just scan a little bit. No, don't see anything. I'm going to give up. Or are we as diligent as this woman? Now switching on the light. And that to me, you know, if you want to be, you know, go on the symbolism of it, you know, is, is obviously the light of the Holy Spirit, you know, the light of, of, of God shining in, into a situation. And then sweeping out is just being so diligent to get rid of everything, you know, all the dust and all the, the dirt, you know, so you can find that which is precious. Um, and then the sheep is found, notice here, it says, when he finds it, he puts it onto his shoulder and he goes home. He takes the sheep home. The coin is lost in the home. The sheep is lost outside the home. But the sheep that is lost outside of the home is brought to the home 
And the coin that is lost in the home is found in the home and kept in the home. Can you see how important the home, the role the home plays? If you go to the next parable, the parable of the lost son, can you see that even there, also, the home plays an important role. Where, the, where in the pigsty, the lost son comes to his senses and says, you know, in my father's house, even the servants eat well, and here I am, starving to death in a pigsty. I'll go home. And the older brother, where is he? Not in the home. Not in the home. And in fact, he refuses to go to the home, just like the Pharisees. Can you, can, you, can you see how important the role the home plays? And it's all about bringing that which is lost home. Home to the family. Can you see that? And that is what we want to do as well. We want to find that which is lost and bring it home. The response of both is exactly the same. In fact, in the parable, it uses exactly the same words. When they, when they find it, they, what, what does it say? It says, they called their friends and their neighbors and said, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin, I have found my lost sheep. Exactly the same wording. In other words, let's celebrate. And the picture here is of celebration of finding that which is lost. Of, and, and, and here's the thing I want you to notice. Here's the thing I want you to notice. Okay? Obviously, I mean, the, the, it, it says so. It says rejoicing. When the, when, the, when the shepherd found the sheep, it says rejoicing. He, he put it onto his shoulders. And that's such a, a picture of intimacy for me. You know? In, in fact, let me just tell this little story because I think it might mean something to some of you. I, I just think the Holy Spirit wants to minister to some of you um, now. In any flock of sheep, you, you got sheep that were serial wanderers. <laughs> okay. You know any of those? You know any serial wanderers? You know, repeat offenders, they're always wandering away from the flock. You, you know any, any sheep like that? Okay. Goats are like that too. Okay. But some sheep are even like that. Okay. Because they used to be goats and they, they haven't shaken off all their goatness yet. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, okay? So they walk away the whole time, and eventually, apparently, according to mid- Middle Eastern you know tradition, if a sheep did this enough times, the shepherd would not only go out and fetch the sheep every time. Eventually, the shepherd would break the sheep's legs. Usually, it would be a young sheep, like a lamb. Because, you know, they'd not yet learned properly to, to stay with the flock. They'd wander off by themselves. The, the, the shepherd would break at least one of the, she- the sheep's, the, the, the lion, lamb's legs. And then splint it, fix it, you know, tie it, and then carry the lamb over, the, over his shoulders for days. So that the lamb can get used to him. And you know, sometimes when we wander, Jesus has to do that with us. Sometimes we wonder, why are things going so bad? And then we don't realize, okay, Jesus has to break our legs because <laughs> if He doesn't break our legs, we're going to keep wandering. He has to break your leg and then splint it, put, he, put you on His shoulder where, where you're like very close to Him, where you can feel His body heat and where He can carry you around until you get used to His smell, until you get used to His presence, until you want it. 
and then you stay with him. And, and, and apparently once that has happened, once that leg has mended, that lamb will not leave the shepherd's side. And, and even when he grows up into a sheep, it will stay with the shepherd. And some of you, you've gone through a season of hobbling around with a broken leg, you know. And you're like, why is this trouble happening to me? Or you've been through a season like that. But looking back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Looking back, you can see, okay, but Jesus carried me through that time. And he actually drew me closer to himself in that time. That is why he did it. That is why. He did it because he loved you. He broke your leg because he loves you. That, that's how much he loves you. That's really how much he loves you. That's really how committed he is to having you with him and making sure that everything that would keep you away from him is removed. Doesn't that make you feel loved? Here's the other thing I want. <laughs> Marcus is walking around, you know, with, <laughs> with, with his crutches and, uh, and uh, torn ligaments and stuff. <laughs> But, but here's what I want you to see. The, both the, the woman and the shepherd, calls their, they call their friends and their neighbors and they say, rejoice with me for my, I, I found my sheep or my coin that was lost. Here's the thing. Rejoicing, celebration is not complete until you share it with others. Celebration is not complete until you share it with others. I mean, we know that. I mean, when you hear a song that you really love, that really touches your heart, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to call someone to come and listen with you to it, right? And then you like, want to rave about it, like, wow, you know, isn't that great? Or if you see something, you know, you, you get a, discover a joke or something or a meme on the internet that's really funny. You want to forward it, you know. You want to tell people about it because you want them to laugh about it as well. You want them to celebrate it as well. You know, when you're a parent, you know, when, when your kid does something amazing, and that happens often because, I mean, you're a little biased, you know, after all. But when your kid does something amazing, you just want to go and tell people, you, you know what happened this week, you know? You know what Ethan did, you know? <laughs> he pushed himself up onto his arms, you know? And he actually moved backwards, you know? Leopard crawled, you know? It's like awesome. And you want someone to celebrate with you because celebration is not complete until you've shared it. And that leads to a culture of celebration. And that's the culture of celebration that we want to develop in us as a community, in us as a church. So that when the lost are found, we don't only celebrate, we celebrate together. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I, and I want to really, the challenge this place is before us is do we really celebrate the lost being found the way we should and the way that God celebrates it. Because here's the thing. What you celebrate, you propagate. What you celebrate, you propagate. What gets rewarded, gets repeated. <clears throat> if we want to be a church where the lost are found, then we're going to have to develop a culture of relentlessly celebrating when the lost are found. Relentlessly celebrating. Not individually, but together 
Bring your testimonies. Come and tell us how you were lost but now you're found. Or how one of your family members or your friends were lost and now they're found. Celebrate it. Not alone. Together. So we can develop that culture of celebration. Because what you celebrate, you propagate. Amen? And then the, the fifth thing that we see is um, the rejoicing on earth is reflected or reflects the rejoicing in, in heaven for the lost being found. Both the parables, or both the portions of the parable, end with, likewise, there's rejoicing in heaven for one sinner that repents, or one sinner that is found. But there are slight differences between, um, the, in the way that, they are, that, um, that the rejoicing is, is explained. In verse 7, um, Luke 15, verse 7, it says, uh, at the end of the first part, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So I just want to take, I already spoke about this idea that that doesn't mean that the 99 is not important. The idea is that you understand that the 99 is important and that tells you something about how important the one is that is lost. Okay? That's the idea. But, but here's the thing. The attitude of the shepherd, the attitude of the shepherd is, more, is not focused on keeping what you have, but seeking what you don't have. Can you see? Can you see the attitude? I mean, if you look at every single mainline traditional denomination that is in decline, they have got, gotten into an attitude of maintenance. We're just going to keep what we have. We're not interested in growth. We're not interested in finding the lost. We're just going to maintain what we have. We're just going to protect and keep what we have. We're going to focus on the 99. And guess what that results in? Decline. By trying to keep what you have, you inevitably lose what you have. You go into decline. Go and look at church history. This is true for every single denomination that has done this. And almost all the mainline denominations are struggling with this thing. Because they focused on keeping, not on searching and finding the lost. There's a, a story, a well-known story in, in history. I mean, the Roman Empire... You know, started in, you know, 100, 200 before Christ. You know, it became, started becoming really big. By the time of Christ, obviously, they were the big dogs on the block. The Roman Empire was the empire that ruled the known world. And it continued for a few hundred years. But what most people take as the start, the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire was, I mean, they, they conquered the whole of Europe, all the way to Spain, and then they noticed, oh, there's a little island, you know, across the Gulf, you know, <laughs> across the Channel. Let's go and conquer that as well. So they went and conquered Britain. In those days, it was called Britannia still, you know, because they spoke Latin in the Roman Empire. And they conquered big parts of Britain, but they stopped just before Scotland, and then the emperor called Hadrian built what is known as Hadrian's Wall. And most historians take the building of Hadrian's Wall as the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. Because you know what, what, what changed there? Their attitude. 
the attitude was no longer one of expansion and conquering. It was now one of let's build a wall and protect what we have. That was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. And not long after that, the Roman Empire fell because their attitude changed. From one of conquering, of being proactive and going and conquering new ground, taking new ground, to one of, okay, we've done enough. Let's just sort of build a wall and protect and maintain. How easy is it for us to fall into that attitude of, I'm just going to maintain? I'm no longer going to conquer. I'm no, we, we are no longer going to conquer. We are no longer going to press forward. We are no longer going to break new ground. It's very easy. I mean, for someone like me, I'm a natural maintainer. I, I, I have to confess to you, I'm not, I'm not a high-risk person. <laughs> I mean, conquering, pressing forward, taking new ground, that's risky. I, I'm very risk-averse. I, I tend to avoid risk. You know? The stuff I've been sharing this weekend with you guys, very difficult for me. <laughs> I, I'm just being very honest here. But God is challenging me and showing me, any, you, you've got a wrong mindset. You've got the wrong theology that leads to the wrong mindset. You cannot be a maintainer. There's no such thing. Christ is not a maintainer. He's a conqueror. He's more than a conqueror. And He makes us more than conquerors. He's not cautious. He's not risk averse. Discipleship cannot be done by people who are risk averse. Who avoid risk. You don't avoid risk. You manage risk, but you don't avoid it. Can I get an amen from Steph there? (laughs) You manage risk. You don't avoid it. By avoiding risk, you avoid life. So we cannot fall into the trap that the Roman Empire fell into. I see young George is smiling because he's an evangelist. Evangelists love risk. They're very different from, from us pastors and teachers. They, they love risk and they say, yeah, come on, pioneer, take new ground, take, you know, have risk and so on. So he's loving this. He's loving this. In the second part, the emphasis is more on God himself rejoicing. So just let me read you verse 10. It says, in the, in the first one, notice it says, in the same, I tell you that, uh, the, uh, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven. It's not very specific. It just says in heaven. So you can think, okay, it's the angels rejoicing. Right? In the second, it's a bit more specific. It says, in the same way, I tell you, because obviously the angels will rejoice, but it says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. Do you see what it's saying? In case you were thinking in the first part that it's just the angels of heaven rejoicing, it says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Who's in the presence of the angels of God? God. So in the second, the, the last verse of the se- second part of the parable, it just wants us to it just wants to make the point and us to get the point that God Himself rejoices over one sinner who repents. And that is the problem with the Pharisees and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the scribes. They didn't have God's heart of rejoicing over the lost being found, over sinners who repent. They didn't have God's heart. Jesus had God's heart, and that's why he spent time with sinners and tax collectors. And he didn't worry about the Pharisees' guilt by association trick that they tried to pull on him. 
Each set has a periphery and a center. Okay? The periphery and the center. Think of that as um, a fence around and a well in the middle. Okay? And a bounded set has a, a soft center and a hard periphery. A soft center and a hard periphery. In other words, they're hard on the outside but soft on the inside. The thing that keeps... And there are very clear lines between who is in and who is out. Can you see? Do you recognize this in the parable? Who has this approach? The Pharisees, right? It's very clear. The sinners and the tax collectors are out and the Pharisees and the scribes are in. And, 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 and the, those who are in don't hang out with those who are out. Because there's a very hard fence. There's a very hard periphery. It's all, the, the, the group is defined by, by their boundary. That's why it's called a bounded set. It's defined by the boundary, not by the center. Can you see how many churches are like that? It's very hard to get in. But once you're in, it's also very hard to get out. Because what keeps you out and what keeps you in is this hard fence. This hard boundary. This hard periphery. Okay? Then you get another group, which is called a fuzzy group. A fuzzy set. <laughs> they have a soft periphery and a soft center. There's nothing really that keeps them together. It's very fuzzy. It's very, you know, there's, there's no center, there's no central core beliefs that they agree upon that keeps them together. And there's no you know, hard boundaries that keep people in and out. So it's easy for people to come in. Very easy for people to come in. Just as easy for people to go out. And there's nothing really that keeps them in. So people are constantly coming and going. And you know, it usually fizzles out after a while. Liberal churches are like that. No boundaries. No center. No core beliefs that keep people together. Okay? And the third one is called a centered set. Okay? And the centered set has a soft periphery but a hard center. A soft periphery but a hard center. It's easy to go in, easy to go out, but the center draws you in. And keeps you in. And when people stay in, it's not because they are 
forced to stay in by the boundary, by the periphery, but it's because they want to stay in because of the center. Okay? The Pharisees, in their, in their model of the hard periphery uh, uh, and, and the soft center, they have religion at the center. Jesus, with his soft periphery and hard center, has the gospel at the center. Now, here's the difference. Here's the difference it makes. If you have religion at the center, if you have religion at the center, then you're going to have a form of external holiness that forms the periphery. Okay? But it's a holiness that is not based on the right motive. And we see that in the parable. I'm going to explain that to you in a moment. Jonathan Edwards explained this very nicely. He spoke about um, common virtue and then true virtue. And here's the difference. Let me just use the example of lying. You're taught in business school that you shouldn't lie. Do you know that? If you've been to business school, they'll tell you don't lie. Why not? Because it's bad for business. Right? It's bad for business. If you lie, people don't trust you anymore. And if people don't trust you, they're not going to do business with you anymore. So people in business school who are not Christians, they often will tell the truth. Why? Because they're afraid of losing business. What's their motive for telling the truth? Fear. Fear of being caught out. Fear of not doing so well. Fear of whatever, you know. Or another one is, um, I'm go- I've got to tell the truth because I'm not like them. Those people who don't tell the truth, I'm not like them. We're not like them. So we tell the truth. What's the motive there? Pride and self-righteousness, right? Pride. In other words, there's doing the right thing but for the wrong reason, fear or pride. Now why would you ever lie? Because you're afraid and you're trying to cover something up. Fear. Or you want people to think better of you than you really are. So you lie to make yourself look better. Pride. Can you see that people who just have common virtue and who are motivated by fear and pride to do the right thing, the thing that motivates them, the very thing that motivates them to do the right thing is the very same thing that will motivate them to not do the right thing. So you're harboring right inside of your heart, right inside of your motive to do the right thing, the very motive to do the wrong thing as well. Can you see how it's not sustainable? It's not going to last. Okay? What was the Pharisees' motive for their external holiness, their hard periphery that kept the sinners out? Pride. We're not like them. They are sinners. I mean, even them calling them sinners, tax collectors and sinners, said, they are sinners, we're not. They are out, the sinners, we are in. The holy, the righteous. Can you see that? Can you see it's their pride motivating them. So if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, for pride, you're going to have that hard periphery and you're going to keep people out. Because it's, you don't want to associate with them. I'm doing the right thing. I'm holy because I'm better than other people. Because religion is all about what I can do in my own strength to please God. So if you bring religion to the core, then when you get it wrong, I mean, you're going to 
feel very depressed and want to kill yourself. When you get it right, you're going to feel very proud. So you're always going to be underconfident or overconfident. Always. And you're always going to look down. When you do get it right, you're going to look, or when you think you're getting it right. Because religion, with religion, you never really get it right. That's why I said a form of external holiness. Jesus said they're like, you know, whitewashed tombs. They wa- painted white on the outside, but they're full of dead men's bones on the inside. It's just external holiness. Religion can only give you external holiness. And, but when it gives you external holiness and you think you're getting it right, you're going to have pride and look down on those who you think are not getting it right, the sinners and the tax collectors. And you're going to say, don't want to associate with them. Don't want anything to do with them. They're sinners. They're on the outside. We're on the inside. That's if you put religion at the center. If you put the gospel at the center, how is that different? Because then the difference is the holiness you have then is not a holiness that you've accomplished. It's not a holiness that you have acquired. It's not a holiness that you have worked in yourself. It's a foreign holiness. It's God's holiness that has been imparted to you, imputed to you, given to you as a gift through His Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. Whereas religion seems to make you holy, only on the outside, and it's only it seems to, the gospel truly makes you holy, but it also makes you humble. Because the holiness you really have really does not come from you. Can you see that? That's important to see. So the result of religion at the center is pride. The result of the gospel at the center is humility. Because the gospel is all about, I could not do this. And God did it for me. Jesus lived the life I could not live. And He died the death I should have died. In my place. And it's His holiness that is credited to my account. Christianity is the only religion where you do not bring your accomplishments to God and say, Accept it. But where someone else's accomplishments are brought to God on your behalf. And and God accepts it. It humbles you. The gospel humbles you into the ground because you didn't deserve anything. You're no different. The gospel says that if you look at those who are in and those who are out, there's no real difference between them. There's no real difference. Except for the grace of God. Something that you did not deserve. Can you see that? The religion at the center causes you to exclude the sinners from those who are... Or exclude yourself from those who are sinners. The gospel says, well, I'm also a sinner. The only reason why I'm on the inside is because of the grace of God. The gospel of God's grace that has saved me. It humbles you. And therefore you can have a soft periphery that allows other sinners in. Because you're humble. You're not looking down on them. Because you, think, because you know I'm one of them. I'm also a sinner saved by grace. I mean, there, there was this teaching um, going around a couple of decades ago. Neil Anderson, Dr. Neil Anderson was one of the main proponents of it. Which was a, just a false teaching. And he said, no, when you be get, be get, become saved... You move from being a sinner to being a saint. And and you never ever called a sinner again. Wrong. You are called a saint. That's true. That's true. Your identity has changed. That's true. But you're still a sinner. 
A saint is a sinner saved by grace. That's what a saint is. Okay? What does Paul say? I, the chief of sinners, persecuted the church. Paul, who is a saint, one of the greatest saints of all time, calls himself the chief of sinners. In other words, the gospel, because we're saved by grace, you know, it should make us never exclude ourselves. Even though we're in, it should never exclude, we should never exclude ourselves from the sinners who are out because we realize that we are just sinners saved by grace. And then we'll be able to have this soft periphery that allows sinners in easily. And what keeps them in is the gospel, the beauty of the gospel of the grace of God that saves us and not some other fence that we build around them to keep them in. Okay. Can, can we hand out the elements of the communion? We're just going to have communion together. And I just want to take you back to, to one of the first verses of the portion that we read. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around uh, to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Listen carefully. Listen carefully to this. You must get this. And I'm closing with this. The accusation brought against Jesus, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay? We, likewise, must welcome sinners and eat with them. That's the point of, of, of this parable, right? That Jesus is doing the right thing by welcoming sinners and eating with them. So we must welcome sinners and eat with them. But here's the catch. Here's the catch. Here's the catch. You can only welcome sinners and eat with them if you are welcomed as a sinner and Jesus eats with you. If Jesus welcomes you as a sinner and eats with you. That's what communion is about. That's what communion is about. Communion is celebrating that I am one of those sinners whom Jesus has welcomed. I am one of those sinners with whom Jesus has eaten. Isn't that amazing? I am one of those sinners. I'm welcomed. I'm a sinner who's been welcomed and Jesus eats with me. And he doesn't just eat with me. He gives me his flesh and his blood to cleanse me, the new covenant. And these symbols, the bread and the cup, represent Jesus' flesh that was broken for us on the cross and his and on the cross and his blood that was shed for us on the cross so that as sinners we can be welcomed and celebrated by Jesus. You see, we so easily identify and say, okay, well, uh, Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them, so I must welcome sinners and, and eat with them. And we forget that I am one of those sinners that has been welcomed. I am one of those sinners. And only if I recognize that can I welcome other sinners and eat with them, like Jesus did with me. Can you see how that humbles you? Can you see how the gospel at the center humbles you? That's why we've been talking about discipleship as gospel transformation within community for witness and worship. Gospel transformation within community for witness and worship. And gospel transformation is the only transformation that will humble you sufficiently so that you can receive other sinners because you realize you're just like them but for the grace of God.
And hear me now, church. Hear me now, people of God. If we don't have that attitude of gospel humility, we will never be able to welcome sinners and eat with them like Jesus did. And we'll never be the kind of church that Jesus died for. Can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see how subtle and how insidious this leaven of the Pharisees can be? That pride that sometimes motivates us. Let us be rid of it by recognizing that we are those sinners. Jesus welcomed us and he eats he welcomes us and he eats with us and that's what we're celebrating with the communion this morning.